Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is Gina Bond. Gina is a dissection room technician in England. And today on the show, we'll talk about how a course in human osteology led her to her current career. We'll talk about her work in restoring and cataloging a pathology specimen collection. And we'll also talk about her blog, The Donation Diaries. Then after the show, stay tuned for a preview of our upcoming episode with Colin Lilly. Now, here's Gina Bond. Gina, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I, I wanted to start with your, your background. Now, you mm -hmm. initially wanted to be a research scientist, but that all changed when you took an osteology course. Yeah. So can you, can you tell me about this course and why was it so uh, special to you? So, um, well, I've always liked science, um, especially biology. It's just always been something I've been fascinated by um, since I was a young child. And I used to live near London. So um, I was really lucky that I could spend quite a few weekends up in London, wandering around their museums. Um, my favourite was the Natural History Museum because, I mean, first of all, it's just one of the most historical, beautiful places in London, but it has a, such a wealth of topic areas to look at. And my favourite gallery was the Mineral Gallery, actually. Um, I loved wandering through the cabinets and looking at all the different sparkly rocks and gemstones and things like that. And okay. this this is what made me think, okay, a general biology degree is probably where I should be considering going because I wasn't too sure which specific direction I wanted to go in. And I started that degree at university. I moved to Sheffield and it was fascinating. It was a great degree. But I realized as I was working through it that there was parts of it I just wasn't interested in anymore. And we were we were able to take part in lab experiments on regularly throughout the course. And I realized that I don't actually like working in this sort of lab environment as much as I thought I was going to. And I actually cannot remember how I found that course. It's quite a long time ago now we're talking I think about seven years ago I did it um okay. so I'm gonna say Facebook probably something like that I probably found an advert for it on Facebook on Twitter or something and I thought hmm introduction to human osteology that sounds interesting I haven't really got to work with skeletons before but I was always a big fan of archaeology I don't know if you've ever seen Time Team over in the US mm, um, no. it's a TV show about archaeological sites and um, okay. it's just literally following different digs and things and I used to watch it quite a lot because one of my favorite actors was also um, on it as a presenter and so I thought well, this could be a really good introduction to this sort of area it's only a week let's see what it's like so I signed up and the course focused basically on analysing a human skeleton in order to determine sex, age, height, trauma, all those really fantastic, interesting things. And I remember ringing my mum after the first day 
and just saying, this is it. This is what I want to do. This is just fantastic. Something clicked and it just felt right. It just felt like the right path for me. I just was fascinated by how much you could learn from a bone. Um, so yeah, that's right. really where it sort of started spurring in my mind this sort of idea of working with human remains in some sort of context. Okay. So this, it sounds like there was a really big uh, sort of forensic aspect to this course and you were working with actual, actual human bones or were they yes. like rep replicas? No, it was actual human bones. Um, our department at the archaeology department in, in that university has a rather large collection of skeletons from different dig sites across the UK and we were really lucky that we could actually work on real real human skeletons replicas are great you know there's some incredible replicas out there these days right. but there's nothing like handling the real thing I think so then you went on to study uh, human osteology and funerary archaeology can we kind of go through this course of study and what were some aspects of it that you found particularly interesting yes yeah, so um after that course i was obviously lucky enough to meet the department's team and i told them about my interest and how much i enjoyed the course and they allowed me to volunteer in the department for the last year of my undergraduate course so what i was just doing was cleaning bones that had recently been recovered from dig sites um, compiling bones that were needed for certain projects and things and setting up things that were needed for the classes. So whether it was a certain type of bone, um, certain ages, things like that. And I was informed about the postgraduate course that was on offer, the human osteology and funerary archaeology course. So luckily the other university in the city offered that course and it meant that I could stay in Sheffield, which I really wanted to do because I love Sheffield. The things I really liked on that course was learning about trauma and pathology and how those sorts of things would affect bone and how you could look at different marks on a bone to, to determine if an animal had had any activity. Um, and, the, and then obviously after that, work out which animal it was, which has not only an archaeological context but also forensic context and I love forensics as well but the best thing about that course and I I think it's the only archaeology department to have this opportunity in the UK I could be wrong but as far as I know it's the only one but we were actually able to do cadaveric dissection as part of this course oh really um, wow yeah so it's highly unusual for uh, courses outside of sort of healthcare to be able to have that opportunity but we were able to do it to sort of supplement our human anatomy module so the only things we were looking at was the the muscles of the human body but it was in order to see how they attach to skeleton you know which muscles leave a bigger imprint on the bone and if there was quite a large uh, area of where the muscle attached, you know, what does that mean? Does it mean that they use that muscle more often? But I, I just thought that was amazing that we had the opportunity to do dissection. Um, I'd never done it before. I'd never seen a cadaver before. And I still 
remember my first day in that lab and it's now the lab I work in so oh, wow. a nice okay. full circle there yeah that, that sounds like that was a great opportunity for you what about uh funerary archaeology can, can you talk about what that is and, th- and then like what what kind of cultures and customs did you learn about in in that area yeah so um funerary archaeology was quite a small part of that course but it was still sort of intertwined in the other modules so funerary archaeology is the study of burial rites types of burials and disposals of the human body after death funerary monuments like gravestones those sorts of things and basically you know it's a way of understanding society by looking at how they treat their dead okay and it was really fascinating you know we did a quick run through of different time periods and how you know how different cultures looked after their dead you know things like sky burials which are fascinating leaving the body to basically be eaten by vultures which is i think quite a nice way return to earth return to nature um but my favorite period is always going to be 18th 19th century britain because these people just loved the extravagance of a funeral um but there is also a stark contrast between really wealthy and the really poor so you know there's a there's a big general cemetery in Sheffield that will have paupers graves where there are a number of bodies in one grave that are unmarked but then you know you walk a few hundred meters in the other direction and there are these incredibly elaborate monuments to mark someone who was very wealthy in the city and you're talking you know eight feet tall monuments with angels and ivy carved into them and they're just I think cemeteries are a really underappreciated way of studying social history and me and my family will find a cemetery no matter where we are we will find a cemetery and we will wander around it so to be able to study that as well was just another really fascinating and great thing to do that I felt in in my postgraduate course okay yeah that does sound very interesting all right so so now you're a dissection room technician as you mentioned a little earlier in the the same place where you took uh that course so so what kind of job duties do you have in that position so yeah i was really lucky to get that job um i've now been doing it for just over three years and I love it. I can genuinely say that I wake up every morning excited to go into work, um, which I feel really lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. I have a quite a, a, a wide variety of jobs. So our department is actually quite small. When, if, whenever I talk to dissection teams across the UK, they always seem quite shocked that there's technically only four of us that do all the jobs in the lab. Um, but it's fine. We manage. We do it pretty well. But basically, I do a bit of everything. And that could be um, talking to people who are interested in donating their body. So explaining you know, what they have to sign, talking to their family, that sort of thing. And then sort of completing the full circle of that by also processing donations of people who are recently deceased. So you know, checking their medical history, making sure that they're suitable for dissection, organizing their collection and drop off at our university. Okay. 
So you actually talk directly with the family about that? Yeah, 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 we do. Um, the phone calls come direct to us. And, you know, there could be one day where I'm sort of working with a class and then 10 minutes later I'm on the phone to someone who's, who's just recently lost a relative, but they wanted to donate their body. So you sort of have to be very quick in changing the way you talk to people because, you know, talking to the recently bereaved is quite um right. can be quite emotional um yeah. but did I've, you get some kind of training in how to talk to them not really nothing sort of sort you know set in stone i just basically watched my colleagues and how they spoke to the relatives um okay. you know my colleagues have have been there a while and have done the job for a very long time they they know what's best um and they do it really well so when I first started, I just sort of sat, watched them answer the phone, how they deal with it. And I think we all have our own little way of dealing with it. Um, and I think it's just in your human nature as well to be able to talk to someone who is recently bereaved. You know, you can sort of listen to the way they are, their tone, whether they're upset or not, and work out what sort of direction that phone call could could go in. Um, but I, yeah. I, I enjoy it. I, I, it sounds strange to say I enjoy talking to them, but I do because I feel like we give them, they, they will know us after that phone call and it sort of settles their mind about giving their relative to us um, and helping them feel comfortable with the idea of donating their relative to us. So yeah, it's sort of, I get more confident as the years go on with that sort of thing. Um, okay. but some of my other jobs are, you know, I will embalm the donor who has come in to the lab. So I've sort of been trained with my colleague to do the embalming. Um, we also help set classes up, making sure that they've got all their tables ready, all the instruments that they would need. Um, we create specimens. So the students will revise from pre-dissected material that we have dissected. So I have to sort of have a pretty good understanding of anatomy to be able to make these specimens. And then I also have sort of a, my own little project looking after our historical potted pathology collection, which I adore. And it's my, it's my baby. It's, you know, I'm, I try and force everyone to look at it all the time. <laughs> I'm always getting the pots out in classes. I don't care if they're not learning pathology. I'm putting some pots out of, you know, gallstones or an aneurysm or something because I just think it's a fascinating collection and we're so lucky to have it. Yeah, I want to get into that quite a bit more a little bit later. So yep. you're directly working with the the medical students. You're you're teaching them uh yeah. dissection techniques. Is that is that right? Yeah. So um in our lab, we teach first year medical students, but we also teach second and third year biomedical scientists, first year dental students, human osteologists, physicians associates. We also have speech scientists and orthotic students in. We sometimes oh, wow. get some okay. bioengineers bio come in as well. So I think it works out as about close to 700 students a week will come in our lab. And we'll either do full body cadaveric dissection or we'll look at specimens to do some anatomy study. 
so it's a wide variety of courses and they all want something different and it's great though to see all those students get excited by anatomy i love it when they finally work something out um oh yeah it's you know because at the start it will be me being oh look look at that nerve can you see it look how amazing that looks or you know oh wow that muscle looks fantastic and they'll just look at me like you're crazy and then give it a few weeks and you know they'll tell gina look what i've found and it's it's great that's i love that part of it so you said 700 a week like how many at one time would be in there well before covid obviously now we are having right. to yeah. socially distance in our labs so it will be slightly different um but you know if we're talking about last year the medical students would probably be in about there would be about 150 of them in at a time so there's about the medical students will have roughly 10 per dissection table which is unfortunately quite a lot per cadaver um but we try and encourage that they all take part in dissection at some point during the year and make sure that they're all involved in some way or another but 150 is the top of what we will have in at one time the smallest is probably about 10 20 students in at once okay okay um you mentioned that you you do embalming something else you you've learned to do is plastination yes uh, so all right did you just recently start doing this and 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 what is that used for so plastination is it's more of the project of my colleague. She she takes control of that area. But obviously, as I've been training on the job, I've helped out and things. So plastination is a technique developed by Gunther von Hagens, who is well known for his body worlds exhibits. That oh, of been, course. Yes, yeah. I've so seen they are incredible exhibits. And they were one of the, you know, I, I visited them when I was, uh about 16 17 and i was mesmerized by them uh-huh. and so we're really lucky that we have a sort of mini plastination facility in our unit and i think quite a few other universities in the uk have this facility as well but it's a fantastic way of preserving human tissue to make it last very long time really what it ha- what happens is we remove the water in the tissue with um, using acetone baths and then using a vacuum chamber, you impregnate the tissue with like a silicon. So they almost become plastic, really, instead of human tissue. And okay. this plastination process allows us to have some really hardy specimens that will last after being handled numerous times by students they're better for things like exams because our students will do uh, what we call a spotter exam where we will pin specimens and they have to identify parts of that specimen our lab has a large glass ceiling and in the summer when exams take place it can get very hot so wet specimens can dry out quite a lot Whereas if we have a plastinated specimen out, it means it can stay out for hours without being damaged, without drying out. It becomes more useful for us. So plastination is just a fantastic preservation technique for dissection rooms across, well, across the world, probably. Um, yeah, and it's, it's a long process. 
does, you know, dependent on the size of the specimen, it can take quite a few months to actually mm. make them in their final form. But it's worth it for the ability to keep them for a very long time. Okay, so that's the advantage then over uh, like formal and fixed tissue. Yeah. Just the, well, it's, they, it's they more are, durable and lasts longer. Yeah, so they are previously fixed with a formal in solution. Um, okay. It just means that we don't have to keep them in a, a sort of wet solution afterwards. We can just leave them on a shelf for students to help themselves to. So you mentioned earlier uh, you've always been interested in museums. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you used you had for a while volunteered at the Bart's Pathology Museum. Yes. Um, what, what, so what did you do there? And it, that's that's in London, then, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, it's um, located in Bart's Hospital, which is okay. um, it's sort of near Barbican area in London. It's not far from sort of the central area. And it's part of Queen Mary University, actually, but it's located within the hospital instead of the university. And so I was really lucky. So when I was coming out of university and not really working in the area I wanted to be in, I was spending a lot of my time networking. And you, I've heard you say this quite a lot on your podcast before about how amazing Twitter is for yes. networking. And yes, it is. I found the exact same thing i have managed to meet so many incredible people through twitter and they've really helped with my career as well and i i always encourage my students to get on twitter start meeting people through that you know make people mm-hmm. know what you're about and that's what i did and i discovered this woman called carla valentine and at that time she was the technical curator of Bart's Pathology Museum, which she still is now, but yeah, at that time she was as well. And uh-huh. I reached out to her and said, I'm coming to a conference that's taking part at your museum. Can I come a few days before and shadow you and see what you do in the museum? And she just basically said, yeah, that's fine. Come along. And she showed me round. She showed me that, I mean, their collection is huge and it is dating back to I think the 1700s 1750s is one of the earliest specimens so it was an incredible collection to work with and over the last few years Carla has let me come back and we will repop specimens that have been damaged we've rewritten uh, text for the specimens so that um, you know people who attend public events can can read what everything is I've done a lot of cleaning. I've helped out at uh, the public event calendar that they they run every year. And um, Carla's basically now one of my best friends. You know, she's really helped with my career progression. And, you know, if it wasn't for her, I don't know how much I would have the opportunity for the job I currently have. You know, it was a really great stepping stone into working with human remains in that setting. And I'm, I'm, incredibly grateful but she basically just showed me the ropes of what it was like to work with human remains in the museum context and i will forever be grateful for that opportunity yeah yeah that's a great example of you know networking through Mm. twitter or you know there are other ways as well and then just taking advantage of an opportunity when it comes up definitely all right so now you mentioned this earlier let's get back into this the uh at your current job 
you mm -hmm. are responsible for cataloging and restoring uh, the pathology collection there. Yeah. Uh, so so let's let's get into this. Where where did that collection come from? First of all. Um, so it's a collection that was held at our local hospital in Sheffield, the big hospital, the Royal Hallamshire. And um, over the years, it's not a very historical collection. It is a 20th century collection. But from about the 40s, we discovered that, you know, pathologists, surgeons would take and keep what they wanted from you know, their surgeries, their autopsies to create these collections for students. There was another collection at the other massive hospital in Sheffield, but unfortunately that got destroyed um, because they didn't have the room, which was a massive oh. shame. And yeah. it seems to be an unfortunately recurring thing across the UK where these collections are not held in the highest regard for what they actually are. And so I just seen as a bit of a burden and, you know, could be destroyed, which is a massive shame. So I'm really glad that we we were able to take this collection from the hospital and look after it because we have about two and a half thousand specimens across all different body systems showing a variety of pathology. And. But, yeah, basically it came from the local hospital. They needed okay. the space. And so we volunteered to take it on. Okay. So then what's involved with the restoration process for these specimens? The majority of them are in Perspex pots. I hate Perspex pots. Quite a few people in the museum world also hate Perspex pots because they leak, they expand, they contract, they can crack. Um, and nothing looks as nice as a potted specimen in a glass pot, but unfortunately, they're very expensive to have. So we've moved into Perspex. And so what I will do is monitor the levels of fluid in the pots to check if the specimen needs topping up. There are some that have completely lost all their fluid and so have dried out. So I'll basically have to reinvigorate the specimen and put it in a new pot in order to show it off again uh, but it basically is like a constant cycle of checking the fluids making sure they're not leaking if they're leaking retopping them up putting them in a new pot so it's nothing too drastic in terms of how you maintain it but it's it is a very much an ongoing process and you will probably end up looking after the same pot year after year unless you just decide to completely remove it from that pot and put it in a new one. But thankfully, it's not too much of a troubled collection, and all I really have to do is just top up fluid levels. Okay, and what sort of fluid are we talking about? Is that formalin? It's, um, it's, a, it's not really formalin. It's a mixture of an alcohol, and it's got glycerol in it. I'm trying to remember oh, okay. now. It's... So it's not a formalin. They'll already have been fixed. So the, the formalin isn't needed anymore, but they'll need okay. an alcohol solution just to maintain them. And I think it's the glycerol that makes them look very nice in the pot and stand out a little bit. I can't remember the, the exact um, concoction that we have, but the most famous one is called Kaiserling, um, Kaiserling fluid. And there's three different fluids 
that you would use in order to preserve the specimen. So you'd put it in the first one and then you put it in the second one. And then the third fluid would be the one that it's maintained in when it's inside the pot. What, what are some of the most rare or, or maybe interesting specimens that are in this collection? So we do have the first recorded case of, I think it was silicosis in Sheffield. So silicosis oh, really? is quite a, you know, it, you would find it across the UK. It's not rare in what it is, but we have the first, the lungs of the first recorded case in Sheffield. Um, and that's a really great specimen to show students about sort of occupational hazards and things like that. You know, we have a huge steel industry in Sheffield and there was a lot of mining in the local area. So these sorts of lung specimens are a great way of showing students you know, how occupations can have an effect on your body. My uh -huh. favourite specimen, which I love showing people, is um, it's a heart with a huge aneurysm in the aortic arch. And I would say it's about six to seven inches across, maybe. And oh, it's, wow. yeah, big. it's full of laminated thrombus. So this blood has just literally layered itself in it it almost looks like tree rings and it sounds strange but i think it's beautiful and i think it's an just an amazing specimen to show this is what the body can cope with you know things can go wrong in the human body but it doesn't necessarily mean that's the end of the world you know the body is very good at adapting and coping and for this person to have had such a huge aneurysm with all this thrombus laid down you know, it must have been going on for ages before it uh -huh. caused any problems. So that's my favourite specimen. But then we also have, you know, the teratomas that are gross. Oh, sure. <laughs> but <there's, laughs> yeah. I love showing them to the students as well, saying, go on, have a look at this. What can you find in it? And they're like, oh, there's teeth in that. I'm like, yep, yep, that's what you find in teratomas. Look, there's hair and things. So, you know, we've got, <laughs> we've got a really wide mix of pathology but there are some pretty cool things in there as well so if i came to a sheffield could i i mean is that is a collection open to the public could i come and see it you could because you're a healthcare professional i'd be more than happy to welcome you into our lab and show you around but okay. unfortunately it is not currently on display for the public we would need a different kind of license to do that so all of our activity is licensed by the Human Tissue Authority and we have a license for anatomical examination. So we can teach using anatomy, but we can't show it off to the public. Um, we also don't have the space at the moment to create a area that we could class as a museum. Uh, before okay. COVID hit, we were in the process of going through plans to have a new building and we would be moved into this new building and there was going to be an area for a better space for this collection. Uh, but unfortunately, COVID hit, you know, like everything right. else, it's put a stop to things. So I'm not sure when that will finally take place. But unfortunately, no, it's not open to the public, but that is in my mindset for the future because... I think these sorts of collections are a missed opportunity when it comes to teaching people about their health. 
you know, they are such a wealth of information to show people, you know, this is what a cancer looks like. You know, this is what it means to have polycystic kidneys. And I think the public could learn a lot. And working at BART and being part of their public engagement calendars, you know, these events would sell out in minutes. People want to see this stuff. So I am really hoping, you know, I've got my fingers crossed for the future that we will be able to have a Sheffield pathology collection that will be open to the public. Yeah, I know you've you've written about this on your your blog, uh, yeah, which is called the Donation Diaries, uh, about having you know that sort of a dream of yours of having that yeah. <laughs> museum open to the public. So let's let's talk about the blog then a little bit. When did you start this, and and why? So I think I started it about maybe a year into working in the lab, and it just came about because I spoke to so many people whether it was relatives, doctors, funeral directors, who just didn't really seem to get the ins and outs of what it meant to donate your body. You know, we had doctors tell patients, oh, you've got a cancer, they won't accept you. Well, that's completely wrong. You know, we would accept people with cancer. Certain types we may have to say no to, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be stopped from donating if you have a cancer. You know, people thought that we would just chuck you away, you know, once we're done with you, you know, chuck you away, clinical waste. Well, obviously, no, that doesn't happen. You know, you have a funeral, but it just, all these things started to come together. And I thought, I need to get the public understanding what it actually means to donate your body. You know, who are you donating to? What are the benefits of body donation? And then what are the ins and outs of it? You know, what documents do you have to sign? You know, will you be accepted? And so I saw lots of people with blogs. Um, I have a friend who runs a fantastic blog. Her name's Mortuary Gem. And she's an APT, an anatomical pathology technologist, um, which I suppose is the UK's equivalent to what you are, I think, sort of. Mm. Yeah. yeah it could and be. Yeah, she way. has it's very similar, I think. Um, and she has a fantastic blog out, you know, letting people know the ins and outs of autopsies and that sort of thing. So I thought, well, maybe I could jump on this bandwagon and do a blog myself. And so that's basically where it started. I just wanted people to to understand body donation more. OK, that makes sense. Do you have future plans for the blog? Just keep writing about your experiences or are there other things you'd like to do with it? Yeah, so life got in the way and I stopped updating it. As quite it does. A, yeah, I stopped updating it, I think, about a year ago, um, a year or two ago. I can't remember when I stopped, but, um, you know, things, I lost my granddad, things got a bit weird and I was just a bit oh. like, you know, there's just, I don't want to do this extra work at the moment. I needed a break um, and I just thought, I guess it's imposter syndrome, which I know you've spoken about before with another one of your guests, but it happens to the best of us. And I just thought, well, no one's really reading it. What's the point in me doing it? Is it worth it? So I gave it a break, but I've got a bit more time on my hands now with COVID. You know, I won't be able to be as closely interacting with students, but I thought, well, maybe now is the best time to start thinking about reinvigorating it. 
starting some more posts. You know, I really wanted to do interviews with um, some of our lecturers, you know, who they are. I wanted to interview some of our students about their experiences working with, you know, body donors. There's Mm -hmm. things that, you know, obviously I can talk about COVID at the moment and how that's had an impact on our body donation processes in the lab and things like that. So I am hoping that I, you know, my head gets back into the swing of things and I will start to produce some more blogs again. Yeah, life, (laughs) life gets in the way. Um, but hopefully I can restart it again. Okay. Yeah. Those, those are some great ideas. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to see what happens with well, those. And you. I'll, I'll put uh, a link to the blog in the show notes for this episode Thank you. Uh, so that people can find it and you'll get more people reading it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if anyone has so. any suggestions, what they'd like to know about, I am, you know, you can always contact me. Please feel free to put my Twitter handle up as well, because I'm always oh, yes. to talk about, you know, body donation to anyone i could go on for hours about that sort of thing great yeah I'll, I'll definitely do that okay uh yeah this has been a really really interesting conversation uh gina thank you so much no thank you for letting me come in and come in come on and talk about this sort of thing it's great to get it out there especially to a much wider audience so i really 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 appreciate it i love your podcast so i'm very honored to be on it big thanks to gina bond now, I enjoyed this one because it was very obvious that Gina is a fan of the show, so that was really fun for me. And also, there's a good lesson in there about how to use networking to advance your career and follow your interests. If you want to learn more about all the things we talked about in the episode today, check out the show notes. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path. And if you like this episode, Make sure you share it with someone you know, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, here's a preview of our upcoming episode with Colin Lilly. Because this is really meant for medical students, right, to be in their clinical rotations. So instead of going through gram positives, gram negatives, and, you know, looking at the different diagnostic tests like you do for step one, we wanted to really try to cater this to, you know, actually what a microbiology lab does. What is important for a microbiology lab in terms of the the blood sample or the, the, you know, the isolate, whatever it is, what's important for that lab uh-huh. and it's it's definitely tough because it's it, you know right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and all the clinical microbiologists are you know basically sleeping at the hospitals working on this right um but you know i i definitely worked on the intro part of that and the molecular diagnostic part of it and we have uh, some other collaborators working on the enteric part and the respiratory part but, you know, it's it's still a work in progress. And there's also some other things on the horizon, possibly an intro to microbiology, which would be kind of uh, what you could take in order to help you with medical um, or, you know, medical microbiology in general or medical coursework. So that's kind of in the works. For more from Colin Lilly, tune in to the upcoming episode of the People of Pathology podcast.